You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Um, if you have your Bible, open it and go with me to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, as you're turning there, let me set the stage for where we're going this morning. Uh, this is uh, week two in a seven-week series that we have titled The Story of God. And uh, what we want us to see in this series is that the Bible, in all of its diverse parts, is telling one unified story that leads us to Jesus. And our hope is that you will see how this story about Jesus intersects with your own personal story. Because the reality is the Bible is telling your story. The Bible is not just some ancient tale about what God has done for them. But the Bible is telling a true story about what God has done and what God is doing for you through the person and work of Jesus. And so your only hope for understanding who you are, who you were made to be, uh, uh, the life you were created to experience is by understanding how your story intersects with this story and letting this story shape and transform your story. So that's our hope for us as we go through this series. That's our prayer. And to that end, we're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I will read down through verse 13. So if you'll follow along with me, Genesis 3, 1 through verse 13. Um, God's Word says this, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, To the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired... Or uh, uh, Yeah, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, right now you would break down every barrier that we have brought into this room with us. So the baggage we carry, the barriers that we have, the masks that we wear the trees that we hide behind. I pray that you would remove all of that and deal with us 
in our emotional, spiritual nakedness. Meet us exactly where we are, how we are, and speak to who we are. God, I invite you to come into this space and awaken our hearts um, to the reality of your presence, to the reality of our brokenness and our need of your grace. And I pray that no single heart would be driven to despair, but we would be driven in in being confronted with this truth about ourselves. We'd be driven um, to casting ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus. So Lord Jesus, in contrast to my brokenness, be seen as beautiful. Show yourself to be good and true and trustworthy and the greatest news in all the universe. Awaken dead hearts, uh, comfort, confront, rebuke, exhort, encourage. Come and do your work, Holy Spirit. Do what I could never do through preparation or spitting or hard preaching or whatever. God, you're the one who speaks, so come and speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week was spring break, and my oldest daughter was out of school, so uh, I took a couple days off work, and I took my family on a little getaway to Branson. And to my surprise, not only did we not kill one another, uh, we actually had one of the most refreshing and restful and beautiful times that we've ever had together as a family. Uh, We got to do all this amazing stuff together. I got to take each of my daughters on an an individual special date, just me and them. Uh, We had free babysitting because my grandparents actually joined us, so we abused them like crazy. Uh, And we would leave the kids with them, and and my wife and I got to go on several awesome dates and just eat good food and reconnect. So refreshing. Um, And then for me personally, it was like a spiritual retreat. Uh, The place where we stayed, although it was right there on the landing, Um, It had no cable and no internet access. And so some of you are saying, like, how did you survive? It was awesome, and you should definitely try it. Um, I was able to completely unplug for a few days and just, man, rest. I got to be still. I got to read a lot. I got to let go of a lot of anxiety that I was carrying. I got to go for runs down by the lake. It was just beautiful. And so when when we got back home yesterday afternoon, I felt like, the most restful I felt in a long time, and my soul was in a good spot. My heart was full of all this gratitude, and I just had this overwhelming sense like, man, the world is beautiful. God has given us so many amazing gifts to enjoy. He is so good, and I was so thankful, and I just had this sense of, man, all is right in the world. This the stuff's beautiful. And then I decided that I needed to get caught up on the news. Because <laughs> I've been unplugged for a few days, Right? So I grabbed my phone, I opened it up to Facebook, and the very first story that I encountered was an update from two of our friends in Kansas City who are on the verge of losing their five-week-old baby girl. Uh, She was born with an extremely rare heart defect, and this week they discovered just earth-shattering news that she has an even more rare brain defect, and so her doctor says she's the most extraordinary baby he's ever encountered. Um, And that's not extraordinary in the sense that you want to be extraordinary. And so Carrie and I have been praying and fasting for them and hoping that God would heal her. But it just seems like things are only getting worse. And so my heart started to kind of migrate from gladness to grief and from light to heavy. Um, And then the next story I read was all about the uh, terrorist attack that took place in London on Wednesday. Raise your hand if you saw that in the news. Right? A guy runs his car through a crowd of people and stabs a police officer, and uh, four people are dead, and several more are injured. And it's just this senseless violence. And then the next story I read was all about this 
15-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted while 40 people watched on Facebook Live and did nothing about it. They didn't call the cops. They didn't do anything. They just watched this unfold as a form of entertainment. And by this point, like, I've had enough. Like, my heart has gone from joyful to grieving to absolutely outrageous. And my soul's asking one fundamental question. What in the world is wrong with us? That's the question I'm asking. What is wrong with the world? I mean, the, 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 the irony is three minutes ago, I was saying, man, the world is beautiful. Three minutes later, I'm going, dude, the world is broken. And we feel that, right? We live somewhere right in the heart of that tension. We all have this sense, like we talked about last week, that we live in a world that is inherently good and beautiful. God has given us so much to enjoy. We should be so thankful. You go outside, you feel the spring weather, you look up at the sky, go out to Crowley's Ridge and just look at the trees, look at creation, look at everything he's given us to enjoy, friendship and love and marriage and kids and sexual intimacy and food. And you just have this sense of, man, the world is a beautiful place. But on the other hand, all of us have this sense that we live in a world that is utterly broken. Beautiful, yes, broken to the core. Something has gone horribly wrong, and you know it, and I know it. Things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. Your tears are evidence of that. And so let me help you with this, uh, because we live, most of our lives we live not in tune with this. We live sort of in denial. We don't want to face reality. So let me help you. Here's how we experience and feel this tension, and particularly this brokenness. Half the time, we just kind of drift through life, not dialed into this at all. But eventually, every now and then, an event will happen, and the fog will lift. And your soul will go, oh my God, it's awful out there. So a gunman will walk into a school, or a terrorist will bomb innocent people, some, some sort of evil you'll encounter on the news, and something in your soul registers and goes, whatever, regardless of what you believe about God, something in your soul registers and says, this ain't right. Something's wrong with this. Or some personal stra- uh, uh, tragedy will strike, right? Someone you love gets sick, or you get sick, or a relationship will fail, or there's a battle with infertility, or there's a betrayal, there's a troubled child, there's a struggle with addiction, someone we love dies. And by the way, man, I've had conversations with the the last week and a half with people in this room facing all of those realities. So something personal befalls you, and here it comes again, this cry of the soul that says, man, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Something has gone horribly wrong. And so what our souls are asking is really two main questions. A, what's wrong with the world? Uh, What's wrong with me? Right? Because it's not just the world. Like, it's not just the brokenness is out there. If we're honest for just a moment, it just takes an honest moment of self-reflection to know that I'm broken. It's not just like the people on the news are broken or that situation is broken. I can look in the mirror and know that I'm jacked up. I am broken. Something's wrong with me fundamentally. And so we're asking, what's wrong with humanity? What's wrong with us? And B, is there any hope to fix this? Is there any hope for redemption? And and regardless of whether or not you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, all of us are asking those questions. 
And the story that we're looking at this morning answers those questions for us. And that story is found in Genesis chapter 3. This is a story that's known throughout human history as the fall. Because this is the point in the human story when everything tragically falls apart. So if you missed last week, a uh, quick recap. We talked about how in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God didn't create a world quite like this. He created a world where there was no evil, no injustice, no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no disease, no death of any kind. And in the middle of that good world, God placed the the first man and woman, the first ever human beings, Adam and Eve. The only creatures to have been said to have been made in God's image. The only part of creation God looked at and said, you are very good. All this other stuff is good, but you are very good. In other words, God's saying, I really enjoy you. I really want you. I really want to share my heart with you. I really want to share my life and my love with you. And that's paradise. That's the world that we're longing for. That's the world that all of us were made for. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3 and we get the bad news. And so um, I was joking with a band this morning. I was, gonna, I was saying like I felt kind of bad about preaching this all week on one hand because if you're in this room and you're visiting with us and you're hoping, man, like I wanted to really come to a service today and leave encouraged, like I'm just going to beat you up all morning with bad news. Um, and so, but, but here's the deal. Um, it, it's only in understanding the bad news that you will understand and appreciate the good news. See, for news to be good, it must invade bad spaces. You go to the doctor and, and you, you get the, re, the good report that says you're healthy. That's good news, right? It's good news because it stands in contrast to the potential that something could go horribly wrong. For news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. Spaces where there's shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, evil, injustice, sickness, and death, and doubt, and all of that. And so my prayer for you this morning as we dive into this word is... Not that in being confronted with your brokenness and with the brokenness in the world that you'll be driven to any amount of despair, but that you will boast and rejoice and hope all the more in the good news of what God has done for you in Jesus. And we are going to get there in this sermon, but first we have to walk through the bad news. We have to face reality. So that's what I want to do for the next few moments is face reality. I want to talk about the fall in three movements. And so here's where we're going. If you'd like to know where we're going, I want to talk about the lie. I want to talk about the loss and I want to talk about the love of God. Okay. Those three movements, the lie, the loss and the love of God. And I want to start with the lie that brings this whole thing down. So look with me. If you're with me, everybody with me. Awesome. Okay, look with me at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and let's talk about the lie. The author writes this. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty. That's a word that means intelligent, but with a flair of deception. This thing's very deceptive. Uh, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of uh, uh, of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, Well... Uh, He said, we may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but he did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent whispered to the woman, you will not surely die. Lie. We've been lied to. 
So I think before we can understand the lie, there's probably something we need to understand about the liar. Because here's the deal, man. This, this, this is weird, if we're honest. This is a weird, bizarre scene, and this raises all kinds of questions for us. Um, who is this serpent that's lying to us? How did he get in the story? Why is he talking? I've never met a talking snake before. Uh, perhaps more confusing, why is Eve able to understand him and talk to him? Uh, for Harry Potter fans, it seems that Eve has the gift of parcel tongue. She can understand snakes, apparently, and talk back to them. I'm glad that at least one person gets it. Thanks, Jen. I can count on you, right? So, hey, this is, this is weird. Let's just own that. If you're a Christian in this room, this is weird. I don't want to pretend like it's not weird. But here's what you have to understand about the Bible. Because we're talking about the story of God here. The Bible is both, um, it is both uh, literature and it's scripture. It's scripture in the sense that this is, this is the divine revelation of God to us. It's literature in the sense that God has chosen to reveal himself to us primarily through the form of a story. And just like any good story or any good piece of literature, there's all kinds of backstory that you're not made privy to. There's all kinds of questions that the story's not seeking to answer. That's because the purpose of a good story is not to answer every single question I have. The purpose of a good story is to suck you in, to draw you in, and to capture your heart and your imagination. And so just like any good story, there's a certain amount of backstory that we're just not given. And that's okay. Now, what we do know is this, if you look back down at the text, what we do know is that while things were good in Adam and Eve's world, something had already gone horribly wrong behind the scenes. Uh, Gary Brashear says it like this. He says, Eden was created in a war zone. There's a cosmic battle raging behind the scenes. Who is the serpent? We know from places like uh, Revelation 12, 9, that this is, this is the devil who is leading this cosmic rebellion against God and against humanity and against all creation. So John says it like this in Revelation 12, 9. He says, I'll put it on the screen for you. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, here's the point of the story right out of the blocks that God wants us to see. And this isn't backstory. This is up front center stage. Here's what God wants you to see. There really is a real enemy who exists who wants to destroy your life. Hey, that's real, guys. There's a real enemy who exists who wants nothing more than to destroy your life. So Peter says it like this, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You want to know why Peter has to tell us to wake up? Because most of us, yours truly, myself included, have a tendency to drift through life half asleep and completely unaware that we are walking in a war zone. And Peter says, hey, wake up, man. If you knew that this field was full of landmines, you wouldn't just take a casual stroll across it, right? You'd be watchful. You'd be purposeful. You'd be careful with your steps. You'd be alert. You'd be awake. You'd be careful what you do, every move you make. You'd be cautious. And you'd be trusting the one who's leading you across that field. Wake up, Peter says. 
And some of you need this exhortation to wake up because you've been blinded by your own skepticism. And so I realize we live in a culture where both science and a fair amount of spirituality is popular. Uh, but what's not popular is when you, once you begin to talk about a God who makes claims on your life or a real devil who wants to destroy your life. That's not very popular. And so for some of you, you have this skepticism when you approach the topic of God and the devil. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. This is, really is a safe place for you to wrestle with that and to ask those questions. My only exhortation to you is that you would, you know, have, have the intellectual honesty to doubt your own doubts just for a moment. Ask yourself if, like, what if I'm wrong about this? There's a really powerful line in uh, the movie The Usual Suspects, one of, the, one of my favorites from the 90s, where Kevin Spacey's character says this. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Listen, man, don't be deceived. There is a real enemy. We are fighting in a real war. There is a real enemy, a liar who wants to destroy your life. And he wants to deceive you and he wants to lie to you. And here's the core lie that he wants you to believe. It's, it's the same temptation we hear every day. That is this. No matter what he says, no matter what he does for you, at the bottom of it all, God cannot be trusted. That's the core lie he wants you to believe. You can't trust what he says. You can't trust that he loves you. And you can't trust him to be enough for you. You can't trust his commands. You can't trust his character. And you can't trust his capacity to satisfy you. And we see all of that playing itself out in this passage. Look with me. The the very first place. this, This is the core lie that we're tempted to believe. The very first point of attack for the serpent is he brings into question God's commands. Look back at the text. He says, Hey, did God actually say? Did he really, did, did he really say that? Are you sure that you shouldn't eat from this tree? Is that really the right interpretation? Are you sure you're hearing this right? And then he just sort of leaves it open for Adam and Eve's interpretation. He sort of just suggests like, hey man, are you sure God really said that? Like, why don't you just in, interpret it for yourself however you want? What feels best to you? What do you What do you think? Define reality however you want and you say what's best for you and see how that works. Did he really say? And so we hear this all the time, right? Is it, this is how this comes to us. Is it, is it, I'm sorry, man, like this is true. This is what happens to us. Is it really that bad that I am sexually involved with this person I'm not married to? Is is that really, like, I I mean, I know kind of what the Bible says, but like it's 21st century. We've surely there's a different way to interpret that now. Like, is this really that big a deal? Is it really that big a deal that I cut corners at work and lie on my timesheet? Like, I mean, I work really hard. My, My boss knows it. I deserve this. Like, does God really say how I should spend my money? Like, is it really that big a deal? I mean, surely I can buy this car, this new house that I can't really afford, but I think this will make me happy, and I know I'm going to go tremendously into debt over this, but does God really say? You know what Jesus says in John 8.44? Jesus says in John 8.44 that the devil is... Jesus believed in the devil, by the way. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. And that his single core motivation in lying to you is that he wants to murder you. That's the word Jesus uses. He wants to murder you. 
So I got into an argument with my two-year-old last week. And yes, I do argue with my two-year-old. Um, we argue all the time. Um, and so I got an argument with my two-year-old because she wanted to play in the street. She consistently wanted to play in the street. And she kept running out in the street. And so I would have to grab her and discipline her. And I said, I said, Susanna, honey, you cannot play in the street. And if she listens to my commands and she trusts my voice, then my commands are life-giving to her. My commands are going to preserve and save her life. How evil would it be if I looked at her and said, I don't know, like, will you actually get ran over if you play in the street? I don't know. Probably not. Just go for it and see what happens. Listen, don't be deceived. What God says, he says, and he means what he says, and he says what he means. And he says it because it's what's best for you. And the invitation of scripture is to trust him. And the enemy wants you to believe you can't trust what he says. He also wants you to believe that you can't trust who he is. So he moves from questioning God's commands to calling into question God's character. And look at where, look at, look at the second point of attack. You see this in the, in the text. Um, Look at verse 5. Eve says, if we eat of this tree, God says we're going to die. And the serpent says in verse 5, man, that's not true. You're not really going to die. Here's what's going on here. God just knows that if you eat of this tree, then your eyes will be opened. You'll become like him. You'll have all this knowledge and you'll be awesome and your life will be amazing and your life will be perfect. You'll have no limits and no boundaries on your life. You'll be able to do whatever you want just like God and God doesn't want that for you. He's holding out on you. So the serpent says, hey man, if God really wanted you to be happy, he'd let you have the tree, right? I mean, the guy's holding out on you here. And so here's how this lie comes to us. Man. God wants me to be happy, right? Surely I can have this. Surely I can do this. I mean, this isn't that big of a deal, right? Because God wants me to be happy. And if God wanted me to be happy, he'd put zero limitations on my life. Where in the world does that kind of logic work, by the way? Limitations are good for you. It's a good thing that you can't hop on Highway 49 and drive from here to Jonesboro as fast as you can, although everybody does it. Speed limit, limit is a good thing. It's loving. It's a very, it's meant to preserve your life, protect you. You should trust and obey it, right? When I tell my daughter, don't play in the street, I'm not trying to hold out on her. I'm trying to love her. Listen, boundaries and limitations are places to meet God. Boundaries and limitations are invitations to trust a good father. When he says, don't do this, he's not saying, I don't want you to be happy. He's actually trying to give you what the tree could never give you, which is the gift of himself. He's saying, hey, you don't, you don't need that. Trust me. Let, let, let me define this for you. You don't need that. It's an invitation to draw near to the Father, to rest in his provision, to trust that he is enough for you. Which is the next place that the serpent attacks He's not enough for you, he says. He moves from you can't trust God's commands to you can't trust God's character. He doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. He's not good to now you can't trust his capacity to satisfy you. And you see that in all the desire and delight language. I mean, look, look, the text speaks for itself. Verse six says that the when the fruit became a delight and a desire to 
Eve, that's when she took it and ate from it. And then she gave it to her husband, who's standing there like a passive idiot, and he takes it and and eats it, right? So, mercy, Daddy. So the lie is, hey, you can't trust God to be enough for you. You need something outside the person of God to satisfy you. You see how the serpent tempts us to shift the objects of our heart's desire? And so now we live in a fallen world where we see all these things shimmer and shine and appeal to us and all the advertising and uh, the American dream and the picture of the good life. And you got to get married. And once you get married, you'll be satisfied. No, 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 no. Once you, get, once you have kids, then you'll be satisfied. No, once you climb the ladder and get the job you want, then you'll be satisfied. Once you get this degree, then you'll be satisfied. You know, once you have uh, the right nest egg and a good retirement plan, then you'll be satisfied. God, man, it never ends. It's exhausting. And the temptation is this thing... This person, this relationship, this whatever can satisfy you more than the person in the presence of the God who made you. It's the lie that you and I hear all day long. And the consequences for believing that lie are utterly devastating. Let's move from the lie to the loss, shall we? Look at what happens as the, te- as the story unfolds. Look at what we lose when we buy into this lie. Everything falls apart. The moment Adam and Eve take this fruit and they break trust with God, that's the essence of sin, by the way, is not trusting God. We want to define sin as just all the bad stuff you do. That's part of it. But it comes from a place of not trusting God. And the moment that happens, something at our core breaks. And the very first thing we see that goes is our sense of self, our sense of identity and our sense of self-worth. We lose it. We lose it. Look at what happens in verse 7. The eyes, as soon as they do this, the eyes of both are opened. They know they're naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Why did they do this? What's going on in their psyche and in their emotional world in this moment? that causes them to go, I've got to cover. I've got to cover up. We were told back in Genesis 2.25 that they were naked and unashamed. Now they sin and they become naked and ashamed. And so for the first time in human history, we are plagued with this thing called shame, which is all about identity and self-worth. Shame says, hey, look, man, you're so bad to the core that if anybody knew the real you, they could never love you. You're not worth loving, shame says. And so then our defense mechanism is I got to cover i got to somehow cover up. i got to put on a mask. I've got to change my image so that people will accept me and love me for who I, not, for, not for who I am, but for what I do and for the image that I project. And so the question would be, what masks are you tempted to wear? Where are you battling shame and how are you trying to cover it up in your life? For me, I've worn a lot of masks in my life. I've worn this mask of Adam the entertainer. I've hidden behind a mask of Adam the biblical scholar Adam the pastor, Adam the husband, Adam the dad. At the end of the day, every single one of them proves to be insufficient because they just can't give me the self-worth and the sense of identity that I'm craving and longing for. They can't tell me, Adam, you're loved for who you are. You really are. They can't give that to me. And so the first thing that goes, guys, is this, this sense of self. 
This relationship with ourselves is broken. Then you see it's not only that our relationship with ourselves is broken, but our relationship with one another is broken. So look down at verse 11. God says to Adam, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And look at, look at Adam's bonehead response in verse 12. Uh, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, uh, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Look at what sin does to this marriage. I mean, Adam in this moment is, is so plagued by guilt and so looking for an escape that he blame shifts all this onto his wife to try to cast a better light on himself and he completely throws her to the wrath of God. She does it. I was working out in the garden all day, God. I just came home, dinner was ready. Uh, and so she rang the dinner bell and I came home and this is what was on the plate and I ate it. I mean, I had nothing to do with this really. I'd, I wasn't standing right there the whole time while this snake was lying to her. This is how you know the honeymoon's over, by the way, for Adam and Eve. Like, <laughs> raise your hand if you've been there. Yeah. What you see as this story unfolds is this sickness in our hearts that is sin spreads and infects every single relationship we have. It starts with this marriage and it, it busted up. And by the time you get to chapter 4, you have two brothers, one who murders the other. First murder you see in human history. And then by the time you get, as the story of Genesis unfolds, it, it, it takes no time for you to start to see uh, genocide and rape and 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 robbery and war crimes and slavery and all this all this horrible horizontal relational chaos that ensues and so what do we lose in believing this lie we lose our relationships with one another sin distorts our relationships and we know that because all of us have broken relationships in our lives family members we don't talk to anymore People who've betrayed us, friends that we've walked away from, people who've cheated on us, lied to us, hurt us, and we've done the same things. If we're honest, right? The brokenness isn't just out there. The brokenness is in here. Relational chaos. But you want to know what the most devastating loss is in all of this? And we're moving towards wrapping up here. The most devastating loss when we buy into this lie is that we not only lose our relationship with ourselves and our relationships with one another, but we fundamentally lose our relationship with God. And so look back at verse 8 and look what happens. I think this is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the whole Bible. It says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The essence of sin is not trusting God. And you cannot have closeness and intimacy and love in your relationships without trust. And so the moment we don't trust God, we go from connection to separation like that. We go from trusting him to doubting him. We go from being with Him to running from Him. We go from abiding in Him to hiding from Him. Like, guys, we, your soul was created to be connected to God. I, I can't believe the language that says they hid from His presence. What strong language. 
Paul, uh, or David says in, 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 in Psalm 1611, in God's presence is joy evermore. So the one place where we find joy in the presence of God, we're now running from. How ironic is that? It's because we don't trust him anymore. And so we run from him and we hide from him. Some of you think that when you sin against God, he's hiding from you. He's not hiding from you. You're hiding from him. He's looking for you. That's what the text says. He's looking for you. And he knows exactly where you are. Look at this passage. They're hiding behind the creator of these trees in these trees. And, and he comes looking for them. And the first thing he says, he's taking his usual stroll through the garden. Normally, this is a walk he enjoys with, uh, with humanity. And now, for the first time ever, he's you know, not with them since they've been on the scene. And he says, Adam, where are you? I find that a fascinating question, guys. That's not a geographical question. When I'm with my wife and I'm driving and we're in a new place, I often get us lost, ask her. And she'll ask me, where are we in frustration? And I'll say, I do not know because I cannot locate us on the map and I'm geographically lost in this moment. When God says, where are you? It's not a geographical question. It's a relational question. He knows exactly where we are, but he's saying, where are you? As in, come close to me. I want you close to me. I didn't create you for this junk. I didn't create you for this barrier. I didn't create you to hide in the bushes. I created you to be naked and unashamed, vulnerable and open with me and trusting me and to, to receive all of my love and to give it in return and then give it to others. This, I created you for this. Where are you, he says. I love this quote from David Binner, one of my favorite authors. Binner says it like this, every moment of every day of our life, God wanders in our inner garden, seeking our companionship. And the reason God can't find us is that we are hiding in the bushes of our false self. God's call to us is gentle and persistent. Where are you? Why are you hiding? But because of the illusory nature of the false self, most of the time we're unaware that we're hiding. Coming out of hiding requires that we embrace the vulnerabilities that first sent us scurrying for cover. Benner says, in a fallen world, all of us hide. Where are you hiding? Pete Scazzaro says there's three places probably. We either hide in our performance. You either hide in your, um, your uh, performance, your possessions, or your popularity. Performance says, I am what I do. And so I'm going to hide in my accomplishments, or I'm going to hide in my religious record. Right? I, go to church, I read my Bible, I do these things, and so I'm going to hide there. And the enemy wants you to believe you're safe there, apart from a trusting relationship with God. Or we hide in our possessions. Possession says, I am what I have. And so I've got, the, I've got these things in my life, I've padded my life with these comforts, I'm going to hide here. This is where I'm going to feel like I have a secure and safe place. And the enemy wants you to believe you're safe there. Those walls will never come falling on top of you. You're safe. And then popularity says, I am what others think about me. And so I'm controlled by other people's opinion. As long as this person doesn't criticize me and thinks I'm awesome, then I'm okay. And I can just kind of hide there. The word of the Lord for you this morning and for me is that all of those are insufficient hiding places. God can still see you. And he's asking you the same question. Where are you? 
I'm glad my name's Adam because this resonates with me deeply. Adam, where are you? I feel him asking me about a t- 10 million times a day. So I'll close with this story. I, uh, last week, Susanna uh, kept coming up behind me when I'm trying to dust the floor and she would step on the dustpan and the particles and stuff would go everywhere. And I told her several times, like, do not do this again. Do not do this again or you're going to be in trouble. She did it again. And so I came after her and she ran. She's faster than me. So she ran and she hid from me. And I'm walking around the house. I'm saying, where are you? And I find her in the dining room hiding underneath one of our chairs in a Superman position. Like with both legs sticking out this end and both arms sticking out this end. And I'm like, dude, I can see you. Like this hiding place is totally insufficient for you. It is not working. The father says, I can see you. And here's the most amazing thing to me about this story. Not only does when he comes to you, does he not shame you or destroy you? He makes a promise to you. This is what's amazing, man. Some of you are trying to run from him because you're like, you don't know what I've done. Well, I don't know what you've done, but he does, and I know what I've done. And what's amazing about this narrative is while the taste of the fruit is still on their lips, God comes running for them. And he finds them, and he loves them, and he makes this promise. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He says, hey, look, one day I'm going to set the world to rights. One day I'm going to send this Redeemer who's going to come through the offspring of Eve, and he's going to crush the head of this serpent. And he says this serpent's going to bruise his heel. Fascinating. This serpent's going to bite him on the heel. And this Redeemer is going to absorb all the venom and all the sting and all the poison of sin and death. And he's going to die. But somehow he's not going to stay dead because he's going to come back and he's going to crush the head of this serpent. And as the story progresses, we learn the name of this Redeemer is Jesus. And then God gives us a picture of this promise in Genesis 3.21. Before God banishes Adam and Eve from his presence and sends them away from the tree of life, he, he makes these uh, clothes for them out of animal skins. And he, the text says he covers up their nakedness and he covers up their shame. How did he do that? Well, some animals had to die, right? Like something innocent had to die in their place for their sin so that he could cover up their sin and their shame. God is teaching us right there in the garden. This is good news invading a bad space. I mean, we've talked about the lie and the loss. This is the love of God on display for you in the garden. God says, hey, what you deserve for your sin is death. But God says, I'm going to send you a redeemer who's going to take that death for you and bring you back to life and bring you into a relationship with myself. George Herbert, in his poem, The Sacrifice, tells this story. I'm going to ask uh, the band to go ahead and come back up. Um, George Herbert tells this story uh, in this poem called The Sacrifice, where he depicts Jesus teaching and speaking from the cross to all who are passing by and watching him. And so... um, Jesus says, he says, I'll put this on the screen for you. All you who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, so I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all but me. What's, what's amazing about this story is in the garden, we chose the tree over God. So fast forward several centuries later in a garden, Jesus chooses the tree for us. 
And he chooses the tree of death so that we can have the tree of life. And Peter says this. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel in the face of our brokenness and our sin.